Hey, welcome to the 132nd episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to speech writing to political analysis to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And I don't know why it's taken me nearly three years to get here, but this week's guest, for the first time in Yang history, is a food critic. Ryan Duvall of the Journal Gazette in Fort Wayne, Indiana, is, in his words, a fat guy who loves to eat. But that's a terrible understatement. Ryan is one of America's great food writers. And today we talk about the art of restaurant reviews, of cuisine descriptions, of making or breaking an eatery with a few words. I learned a ton. I hope you will too. And it's right now on Two Writers Sling and Yang. All right, so Ryan, thank you so much for doing this. You're the first food critic or restaurant reviewer I've had on this writing podcast in about two and a half years. You sent me a review and I want to jump right into it. I asked you, I said, do you ever slam restaurants? And you're actually, you're like, yes, I do. And you sent me a review <laughs> that ran recently about the Leo Cafe and the headline, which didn't quite reflect, I felt the, the take <laughs> on the restaurant was breakfast options stand out at quaint diner. And I was like, oh, that sounds nice. And you started the review by sort of talking about some positives of the place. And then you said, that is where the yummy ended. The most glaringly bad dish I had was one that should have been simple to execute. But my fried egg burger not only came without the promised American cheese, it arrived without the egg. I asked for the egg at least and was appeased, though it took way too long to get it, which left the drab gray performed patty cold and even less appealing. The wait during all my visit was bad, even though it was never overly busy. If I worked nearby, there was no way I would want to stop in on a work break. I thought the Lowry breakfast sandwich would be a better bet, but I was wrong. Ham, egg, Swiss, and American cheese on Texas toast seemed like a good mix. But the Texas toast, the real draw to the sandwich, was regular sandwich bread that had been buttered and grilled. It was barely mediocre. I'm actually kind of interested. Like when you write a restaurant view, especially in a mid-major city, it seems like there's a great responsibility with that. Like you can really make a restaurant or really hurt a restaurant. And I wonder, number one, do you worry about that, about going too hard on a restaurant? And number two, how do you make sure you don't? Well, part of that misleading headline, as you like to describe it, is we have a policy at the newspapers to try to spin positive, at least on the headline. Sometimes when it's just a scathing review, it, it, it seems disingenuous. But as a, as a writer, you know, I was a member of the uh, Food Writers Association of America, and they tell you in their guidelines, you know, you are taking people's livelihoods in your hands. So we always try to, we always try to say something good up front, bury the lead, so to speak, because you know, I don't want to put people out of business. I tell people, look, if you think I'm going out looking for a bad experience, you're wrong. I wish every time I went out, I got five-star service across the board, but sadly, that's not the way it is. And I'm not trying to hurt a place. I mean, you can get mad. I've been to restaurants where you're treated so ridiculously. You're just like, I hope this place closes down. But when it comes to my position, I'm not doing that. I'm more trying to let the people know what's going on when they're not aware or Maybe they are aware. I don't know. But no, of course we're trying to help. And we are helping more people, I think, with positive reviews than negatives. I actually have a review coming out here soon that breaks down all of my ratings over the 15 years I've been doing this and, and tells you how I've rated places. And um mass majority of them are above the, the mediocre stage. 
you're at the Leo Cafe and the food kind of is disappointing. What do you need? What needs to happen for you to write a negative review of a restaurant? Well, you know, I kind of, on a five-point scale, which is what I use, I always consider you're at two and a half when I walk in the door. You don't have to earn a star with me. So I walk in, you figure this is an average place when I walk in the door. And it, it can be as simple as, this, you know, the service. Service is such a big deal because it really sets the tone for everything. It, it makes, and I've told people, your food tastes better when you get better service. You know, if you give me a, a run-of-the-mill bacon cheeseburger, but you've welcomed me properly, you've treated me well, you've kept my coffee or my soda full, you can serve me the best piece of filet mignon in the world. But if it's crappy service and crappy treatment and it comes an hour late, it's not going to taste as good when you remember it a week later. I just kind of watch and see how things go. You know, oh, well, now we're down to two stars. Oh, now we're down to half a star. You know, and you just kind of follow it as it goes. But uh, service is a huge part of it. All right, you're in a restaurant. You walk into whatever restaurant you're doing this week, the club room at the Clyde, which you reviewed um, recently. Are you armed with a notepad? What are you, how are you, how are you, how are you, how are you ordering? Well, I always take someone with me. These people think, I mean, I am kind of a heavy dude, but, you know, I don't go in and order eight different things when I sit down. I'd be kind of, you know, I always have people with me. If you're going to eat out with me, you're going to have to share. Um, I try to, you know, gauge the, the feel of the restaurant, what they're trying to do. You know, it's the old don't order the spaghetti at Denny's thing, you know. But sometimes you're, you know, you'll see something on a menu that seems way out of place. And you're like, why is that there? I just did a pizza place today that ran on a bunch of people are coming. Oh, you got to try the fried chicken. It's some of the best in town. It's a secret. But, you know, when I go out for pizza, I'm not thinking of getting the fried chicken, but sometimes you find a jewel. And are you taking notes throughout? Well, and that's the thing. It's been, you know, the, the cell phone has been a godsend for restaurant critics. I mean, everyone takes pictures of their food now, so I don't look out of place if I take pictures of my food. I just, I tell people, I look like when I, especially when I take my wife with me, I look like I'm like the biggest asshole because. I'm just like, look at that guy. He's on his phone through the whole meal. He's not even paying attention to his family. Well, I'm probably typing notes. <laughs> That's kind of, you know. Um, but I have other ways of doing things, too. You know, you always take a restroom break and go in there and catch up on what you need to note and things like that. But in the early days, it was really hard. I mean, I used to use a little voice recorder, and I would talk to myself, talk into my hand, or tell whoever I was with, pretend you're having a conversation with me, but I'm actually saying that the the split pea soup was cold and it didn't have enough seasoning. You know, so it's been a weird transformation over the years. So you write a really negative review, and we'll get to positive reviews. But you write a really negative review of a place. What is it like? I imagine this must happen where the owner of the restaurant or the manager of the restaurant calls you up, either in tears or furious. How do you handle that? And does that happen more often or less often than I than I'm, I'm thinking? Well, it, the, the funny thing is, it's it, more often than not, it's not that they're upset or curious, they just tell everyone that I'm full of crap and I don't know what I'm talking about. And there's no way that they, that I experienced what I experienced the way I said I did. So it's usually like they diss me and, you know, discount what I'm doing. But, you know, occasionally there's those rare instances where, you know, I always tell nothing, nothing's worse than a, a restaurant owner writing a letter to the editor complaining about what I've done. Because if I give you a terrible review and then a week later, you're telling everyone, hey, last week, this guy really ripped me. You're just giving people an excuse to go back and read what they may have missed. But yeah, you know, I have had rest some restaurant owners that are like, hey, thanks. You know, I really appreciate what you know. I didn't know this was going on. 
or they know it's going on. And I just bring it to the attention. They're like, look, we're working on it, you know, staffing. And this goes back to that service thing in, in Fort Wayne marketplace here. It's, it's staffing restaurants is hard these days. Um, kids don't work like they did probably when you and I were kids and we had the, you know, the independence of kids. So like high school kids aren't out there working as much as they used to in the food industry. And, um, you know, I found out from a restaurant owner here recently of this uh, nomad deal going on in, in town where these veteran servers, and by veteran, I mean they're, you know, millennials in their late 20s, they will find a place that opens and is like the hot ticket. They'll go work there for a while till the uh, shine wears off, and then they'll wait for the next place to open. And the thing is, these people will get hired at different places because it's so hard to find experienced staff. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a real challenge. So, but yeah, you know, people will, I've never been threatened. My life's not been threatened. I know we've had former critics I've heard of that had that, but I think after all the years I've done it, people understand that I'm, I'm shooting straight. So when I say something that probably did happen. What's the grossest thing you've ever seen in a restaurant? Yeah, I had a, a seafood dish once, a pasta dish at a place that got one of the lowest ratings I've ever given. And it was like rancid smelling shrimp. And there must have been a lot of oil. It just came off as slime, like seafood slime. But I actually had one of the funniest things I had happen to me, which was off. Was one of the first reviews I did. I was in this uh, chicken wing little chain, regional chain, and packed house. And there were these four kids sitting in a booth behind us, and they were just acting like aliens. And at one point, a kid took a menu and whacked me on the head from over the over the stall just out of nowhere, you know, like they dared him to do it. And these kids are probably eight or nine. <laughs> and I, I asked, I told the server, she's like immediately like mortified. He says, don't worry. I'll tell the parents what happened. She walks clear across the restaurant, probably 30 feet away where the parents were sitting. So these parents went out, took their kids, let their kids sit all the way across the other side of the room. Now I know why, because their kids were jerks. They didn't want to be around them. But I was like, no restaurant in their right mind to allow kids to be left unattended like that. And I wrote that all in the review, of course. You know, so I've had weird things like that. And, you know, the restroom thing is always a good question I get. You know, oh, what's the gross when you walk in the restroom and it's gross. But I'm not one of those people that, like, will freak out about a unkept restroom. You know, I have a friend that works with me whose parents owned a Chinese restaurant. Who He said, you know what, you know, if the restrooms are dirty, the food's better because they're not paying attention to the restroom. They're too busy cooking. And I've always told people, look, if you've gone to a place over and over again and you trust it, and it went the same way when they used to run restaurant, uh, um, you know, the health department codes, you know, use your common sense. If you've been to a place over and over again, you've never been steered wrong, and then all of a sudden there's a bad code violation, don't let that deter you. Use your own common sense and judgment. So I've never been too hung up on, I like dives. I like little places in the back of Asian groceries. I like, uh, you know, pick up at the counter and either picnic table barbecue places. So I don't get real hung up on, you know, the looks and the, that, that kind of thing. I was just Googling this. Fort Wayne, your hometown there, has one, two, three, listed at least, has like nine different Burger Kings. And I feel like, I feel like one thing that's happened. So I, I, I used to travel a ton when I was covering baseball and I still travel a good amount is you hit the road. And every Fort Wayne you go to, or I was in Wilmington, North Carolina last week, they all have Chick-fil-A's, Burger King's, Arby's, Denny's, a spaghetti factory, uh, a macaroni grill, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Olive Garden, Applebee's, 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 TGI Fridays. 
it seems like we have lost it. Like you say, you love the dives. And I love the idea of the dives. But to be totally honest with you, when I'm in a Wilmington, North Carolina, and I see Mama's Diner or like Tony's Pizza or Chick-fil-A, I feel like a lot of times I'm sort of drawn to the familiarity of the Chick-fil-A. But I wonder as a restaurant reviewer if that just drives you up a wall. Well, I always had a policy even before I was a restaurant reviewer that if you're out of town on a vacation or on a trip, you should never eat somewhere that you can eat when you're in your hometown. But I understand your side of it because, but that's what's so great about Food Network and Instagram. And, you know, you can find out where good places are that are near you. And, I, you know, it doesn't take too long to find a good local joint. I mean, if Guy Fieri hasn't been there on his damn show yet, I mean, <laughs> every town of this size has got to have had a Guy Fieri visit, you know. Um, but that, that flips to the other side where I talk about the, the, you know, Instagram, I think is really a, I've seen it here. We had a place open downtown that was doing like, uh, hot tacos, you know, hot cuisine tacos. And, um, they, you could roast marshmallows at your table and it was like all the trendy and everybody was going. And I went and I just hated it because, you know, they were serving, uh, beef cheek tacos for $7 a piece. And I can go to the Mexican grocery and get, uh, barbacoa, which is beef cheek taco. For a dollar fifty, and it was like the ignorance of the populace when it comes to the food around them draws them into these places. Like, oh, look at all these people that are going there and posting it on Instagram. I need to go there and post too. And you go there and serve them a pile of dog poop on a plate, and they're going to frame it up real nice and post it and say, "Look where I ate tonight," because they're following the herd kind of thing. And I uh-huh. think it's hurt a lot of places, made them seem better than they actually are. So you got to be careful when you do that, looking online and trying to figure out where the hot place is. I just, it's it's tough. So I under, I definitely understand the familiarity thing. I just, I'm I'm too adventurous to, to go to Applebee's when I'm. It's your old line: nothing draws a crowd like a crowd. Yeah. Exactly, it drives oh. me insane. I just, ugh. I was gonna say, there's places I love that are just off the beaten path, but are like some of the best food I'll ever. There's a bar here in. That's called the, the South Town Inn. The guy, it's a Macedonian immigrant that opened it. And the, the area it's in now has lost a lot, you know, Urban Blight Central. A lot of businesses have closed. But the guy makes homemade Macedonian sausage. He pickles vegetables there on his own. And he's been doing it for 50 years. And you can go in there and get a Macedonian sausage sandwich with Swiss cheese and spicy pickled cabbage on it. And it's like one of the best things. It's actually on my Twitter feed. It's my background. It's that sandwich. And nobody will go there because it's so far off the beaten path. There's nothing around it. It hardly looks open. But if people would drive it themselves to that and put that on Instagram, it would help someone. who we got to keep that kind of food here. It's not the goofy donut ice cream sundae place. You know? I'm looking at that sandwich right now, and i got to say it looks pretty freaking good. Yeah, they do it on an onion roll. It's just it's phenomenal. You can get pickled eggs there of all sorts of levels. and kind. Of, I mean, pickled eggs are a dying thing, too. It's hard to find them. Before we continue with Two Writers Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my son Emmett, the all-time leader in 503 Sports USFL jerseys. So congratulations on being the king of kings, the man who has worn more 503 Sports jerseys than anyone else on the planet. I've written a speech. Oh, okay. First, I'd like to thank Greg Fields of the Los Angeles Express, who was angry enough to punch his coach in the face and inspired me to get his jersey. That was- There's more. Second, Ed Luther, who sucks so bad as a Jacksonville Jaguars quarterback that I had to get his jersey, 
That's beautiful, so... And another thing. Doug Williams, whose two seasons with the Outlaws were so horrific, I just had to... Wait, wait! Don't you ever want to go to 503-sports.com and order a jersey of someone who inspires you? Why would I do that when I have you as a role model? Really? No. Well, you've been reviewing since 05. You've been a restaurant critic since 2005. How often are you tasting something that you've truly, truly, truly never had before? It happens a lot here more often than you think. We have one of the largest Burmese populations in the country, and that equates to great Burmese and Thai food. I'll, I'll remember the first time I had a dish with pith of banana stem. Look that one up. I'd never had that before, and it was an interesting textural and flavor thing. It was just wonderful. you know. And every once in a while, I, I went to a little place that just had a marinated shrimp salad that was Super simple, but it was the combination of fish sauce and lime, and it gave it a flavor that, you know, if you put it on a plate at a upscale eatery, you could have sold it for $40. It happens quite a bit, um, but as far as true inventing of food, man, that's, you know, it's more of a trendy thing. I, I tell people, see, I grew up in Indiana. We would have every Christmas and Thanksgiving special occasions, we'd have what was called side meat, and it was a thick-cut bacon that wasn't cured or smoked. So it was very meaty, and it was, it was really, well, that's pork belly. Well, all of a sudden, I was going to places, this is pork belly. I'm like, well, I've been eating pork belly my whole life. We just called it side meat and ate it for breakfast. So a lot of times, things are reinvented in a way that makes them new, and they're really nothing new at all. But I want to ask you something, because you mentioned uh, you evoked the name Guy Fieri a couple minutes ago. And back in 2012, there was a, uh, a very famous, now famous or infamous, I don't know, uh, New York Times review by Pete Wells and reviewed Guy Fieri's American Kitchen and Bar in Times Square. It killed the restaurant. I mean, I've never seen a greater destruction of a restaurant than, um, than what Pete Wells did to Guy Fieri. And I loved it. I read it and I thought, this is freaking brilliant. It's brilliant writing. It's a great review. There are a lot of people who thought that's not fair because it's like going to see the movie Godzilla and reviewing it as you would Gone with the Wind. Like there are, there are expectations if you're eating in Times Square, a Guy Fieri's American Kitchen and Bar, it can only be so good. Where do you fall on that one? Well, I'll tell you, his recent review of Peter Luger was a much better example of quality food journalism. Um, he did the same thing. He, you know, he tore that place apart. It's a longstanding institution. And that was legit, and I think that was fair, and I think it probably deserved. But the difference between, you know, the Peter Luger and Guy Fieri's is I, my only question with that story was the New York Times has a, a columnist to do the middle of the road restaurants, the lower price places. And I thought that it was a little bit of a targeted thing and that that's not the kind of place the New York Times critic ever reviews anyway. Um, if it was a good, if it was a really good place that was that level, they still wouldn't do it. So that was my only question, but I think it did serve a purpose in terms of exposing the American ignorance to quality food. Um, to me, it was as much about the people that are eating there as it was about guys' donkey sauce. You know, uh, I, I get, you know, it's, it's just like when people are telling me how, how much they like. I had a friend that loves to eat at Applebee's and I just am like, really? The last time I went to Applebee's, my kids wanted to go there and I sat there and I go, oh my God, this is expensive and terrible for what it was, you know, it's like, I just couldn't get it. So 
that was my only question with that. I mean, I laughed, I read it, I thought it was funny and entertaining, but I do think it rode the line more of entertainment than true journalism, whereas the more recent one of the steakhouse, that was truly a good job. I had not been to an Olive Garden in years and years and years and years. And we were, uh, we do family dinner Sunday nights with my father-in-law and, you know, his girlfriend. And we decide we'll go out to Olive. We'll just go to Olive Garden. Let's just try Olive Garden. We haven't been to Olive Garden. I thought it was so preposterously bad. And I wonder what is the difference between a fresh Italian bistro? I'm actually being serious, like a, a great Italian restaurant and Olive Garden. It's some microwaves. I mean, Everything now, people got to accept this, whether it's Applebee's or Olive Garden or even IHOP in some cases. Although I like IHOP because you can't really fake eggs. But a lot of that stuff is totally warmed over, pre-made, arrives, done. And what I tell people is, look, last time I, the wife and kids and I went to Olive Garden, someone gave us a gift card, which is just exactly what I needed for Christmas, a gift card to Olive Garden. <laughs> That's awesome. Wait, who gave time out? Who gave you a gift card? Who gave the food critic to the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette? A gift card to Olive Garden. I actually think it was one. My wife's a teacher, and I think it was one of those door, you know, those like gift exchanges you do with teachers. You know, they do like a secret Santa. Uh-huh. But I'm still like, oh, come on. But I sucked it up, and we went. We went on the nights they have that buy one, take one home. You uh-huh. like whatever dinner you buy, they send you with one home so you can eat it the next day. Because I'm like, well, this is, I got three kids. I can do this. And you just got to go in being like, okay, what's the one thing I can get that will be the least horrendous? And, you know, most of the time I tell people when they go to a good restaurant to always look at the specials board because with a specials board, you know, like a chef makes the same menu over and over again. But let's say he gets in some uh, mussels that he normally doesn't get to play around with. And so he makes a steamed mussel platter as a special on a Thursday night. Well, you should order that because he was excited. He was inspired. He was doing something. And, you know, not he wasn't making the same pasta he makes every night. But it's the opposite when you go to Olive Garden. If they're trying to serve you like special Sicilian style something or other, stay away from that because they're not going to be able to do it well. Just I just said get get like chicken parm and spaghetti or get the fettuccine Alfredo and be done with it. It's going to be the jarred style sauce and but it's not not it's still good and there's nothing wrong with fettuccine Alfredo and chicken parm from Olive Garden. You just have to temper your expectation of what you're getting and know what you're getting. Yeah, I thought it was like the worst meal I've had in years and years. What did you have, though? That's what I want to know. I don't even remember anymore, but I remember, um, I think I had chicken, whatever, and um, I just remember being really psyched up for the salad bar, because, I mean, for the salad, because I remember the whole thing is the salad and the breadsticks, and I thought the breadsticks were hard and too slick, and the salad was just like overwhelmed by dressing. Right? When you're getting all you uh, can eat at lunchtime for 425 or whatever it is. You uh, you got to the Fort Wayne Journal Gazette in 1999. You were a deputy sports editor. Uh, you moved to copy out and designing in 2003, and you've been the restaurant critic since 2005. And um, to be blunt, who the hell are you to re- <laughs> to review food? Like, what makes you any more qualified than anyone else? Or is that the whole joke of it all? It doesn't actually. You can if you eat, you can do this. I go to colleges and stuff, and they talk, and they're like, "How do I become a food critic?" I'm like, "You can't. It's not going to happen for you. You can't. There's no class. There's nothing." Bottom line was, I mean, if you looked at me, you'd say, there's a guy that likes to eat. Um, and I tell people, I've always eaten out a lot. You know, we didn't have kids. My wife and I didn't have kids, so we were in our 30s. And I just tell people that, hey, uh, you know, my wife can't cook with a damn, so we ate out all the time. And it's true. My wife's not a very good cook. So I was always eating out, and I was always interested in food and food culture. And folks there knew that I was a guy that was on the 
always knew of a new place that was opening. And But the bottom line was I was a trusted journalist. I had a, a, a long record of being responsible and doing good work. So when it's time to give that important job to someone, because your, your ethics are on the line. I mean, I, I tell, I used to tell people that every day I'm faced with an ethical decision, you know, and there's so many times where, you know, I got to be careful about people offering me free stuff after I've reviewed and done well, they want to send me cheesecakes and stuff, you know? Um, so I really got to try to ride that line. And it was really more about me being a responsible journalist and the other part of me, you know, being a fat guy that likes to eat. You know, you don't have to be a, a chef to be a food critic because, you know, any more than, you know, you have to be a, you know, an attorney to be a court reporter. And, and that's why there is that level of, hey, this is what I think. I never said I was right. I've never told people that everything I say in my reviews is right. But what's right is it's what I think and what I felt and how I experienced it. Um, and as long as you're consistent with that and you're not playing favorites. I mean, I've had, we had a Italian restaurant chain here, a small locally owned family who was embedded in the restaurant industry. Father owned a grocery store and uh, owned restaurants. The brothers owned one brother opened an Italian place and I hate it. And I finally got to the point where they said, nobody was allowed in here that works at the Journal Gazette. If we know you work at the Journal Gazette, we'll ask you to leave. Pulled wow. a huge advertising account at, on the spur of the moment as soon as my review came out. But that's why my, you know, my editors have my back. They want this to be legit. Like if it costs us a, a big advertising account, which these days is no, losing a big advertising account's a big deal, you know, but that's, mm -hmm. it's the only way you can do the job and do it right. How do you write about food and not use the words repeatedly? Scrumptious, yummy, tasty, delicious. Think about it, though. Okay, what did you have for lunch today? Oh, I had uh, Ikea meatballs. Oh, you know what? My uncle is a food. Actually, he actually is a food, and he does, like, consulting work and investigates food places and checks out their kitchens. And he always yeah. says the last thing you ever want to eat are Ikea meatballs in an Ikea. Yeah, he says you don't want oh. to eat. He says if you saw how those were made, you'd never eat one. So, okay, so you had your veggie meatballs today. How were they? They were solid. They were what I expected. How did they taste? Like uh, They were somewhat salty and a little bit mushy. And they kind of, you know, they had like a sort of meaty taste, but a light meaty taste. Yeah. So, see, there, here's the problem with writing about food is there's only so many words you can use. So, like, to say something is Tasty, delicious. You know, delicious is a little high, right? You gotta think about it. The difference between tasty and delicious is pretty steep. And like mm -hmm. people that say these are amazing. I mean, are they really amazing? I mean, is there anything? I, I don't know that I've ever eaten anything that was really amazing, truly. Now I'll say it in my column, but that's the real struggle is how do you not say, you know, or something that's just fine. Like if your meatballs today were just fine, they were fine. What else do you say? They were, you don't want to say, you know, median, I don't make me mediocre is not, that's not necessarily negative. It just means they were state, you know, there's, it's hard to talk about food and either not oversell or make people think you're being negative when you're just trying to say something is fine. There's, and there's only so many words to describe flavor. You know? So how do you do it? I try to unload the notebook on describing the ingredients and what made it good. So if we use the uh, Olive Garden salad as an example, the salad was, 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 it was a decent salad. The oily consistency of the entire dish due to the amount of dressing was an off-putting, but the sweet, salty taste of the dressing was, you know, so you, you try to break it down and, and so you understand where I'm coming from. I'm not saying it's great. 
saying, here's why it wasn't so good. There was a ton of dressing. But that dressing is tasty if there was less of it. So you just got to kind of, almost like math, you know, try to figure out how to, because you can't just say something's yummy, something's tasty, something's good. You got to kind of give them a reason it's good. And if you, if you look in my, if people that read my column will see that I'll often make suggestions and say, this dish was good, but it would have been a lot better if there was a cooling element like a little slaw on the side, you know, or something like that. I do that mm-hmm. quite often because I think it puts people in the mindset of, oh, so it needed something fresh or, you know, you, you kind of can try to walk you through tasting it as you read. But it is really hard to come up with words, you know, and like, you know, moist. How about the moist word? You know how that goes. People hate that word, but, you know, how else do you, you're eating barbecued ribs. Well, the pork was moist. Yeah, there's no other word for moist. What are you going to say? Tell me juicy, yeah, I guess, but juicy is different than moist. Juicy is like dripping, but moist is just moist. Do you think about words a lot? Like, are you tortured by food words? I, I often have to go through each review and make sure I haven't said the same thing too many times in terms of description, because it is really hard. I talk about a lot of different foods in every column, and I want to be consistent, but not like a repetitive thing, you know, because nothing's worth it. And I'm a, I'm a harsh critic of writing in general as a copy editor. I mean, so I'm really, I am harsh on myself because I don't want to be one of those guys that I had a thing where uh, I was using that way too much. Mm-hmm. Someone pointed out and they were in the, did it when, and now I'm like obsessed with making sure I don't use the word that too much. So yeah, I obsess over words. It's why I became a journalist. It's why I've, had what I think is a pretty darn good career at it. And if I didn't obsess over the words a little bit, I'd, uh, I'd be in the wrong business. You know what's funny is, um, I've never talked about this on this podcast, but the word that I'm with you a hundred percent and I can go through my copy, not only circle too many of that, but you can eliminate the word itself about 80% of the time where it's just not needed. It's a funny word. You don't actually need it's it. It's a conversation. You don't have to replace it. Yeah. Conversational because you use it and like, you'll, you'll use that word a lot in our conversation. The one that gets me now with uh, with sports that I want to just kill someone over is both. So, you know, it's like using both when you don't need to, you know. Steph and LeBron both made the All-Star team. Oh, How about right. you just said Steph and LeBron made the All-Star team. Why are you saying both? People use both way too much. It drives me insane. Do you see a sloppiness now that you didn't see maybe a decade ago? Do you see... You, you alluded to sort of sports writing. You, you don't really love where sports writing is going. Do you, is it just sloppier than it used to be? It's so, and I don't know when this happened, but as newspapers have shrunk and news hole has gotten more crucial, our writing has gotten more verbose and long. And I mean, I can cut a 15 inch story down to 10 without even batting an eye. And it's, it's those kind of things like the wordiness of it. And we've also gotten jargon has taken over a lot. And it's hard to, you know, with sports writing because it's, you know, the ESPN kids that grew up watching. That kind of thing. And I, it used to be when I started, you, you couldn't say a guy made a brilliantly placed pass or something. You just, you know, it, 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 a lot of editorializing, um, describing their athletic ability. And, you know, it, it, it wrote on a, what I would say was column writing instead of news writing. We've lost the art of writing tightly. And like I said, the irony is back when I started, we, we had lots of room to write. And we still kept it clean and tight. Now we're not, we don't have as much room and we're rambling on incessantly. I think a lot of people, a lot of young writers, sort of you alluded to it. They, you know, like when I was growing up, when you were growing up, I'm sure I was getting my feed by reading Sports Illustrated and reading guys like Lee Montville and Frank DeFord and Phil Taylor and different writers who were very, very tight. 
and they were beautiful writers and they were tight. And I feel like nowadays what a lot of young writers grew up sort of absorbing was Stephen A. Smith babbling on for 20 minutes about something or Chris Berman being over the top with his cause of football games and, and this sort of effusiveness. You know, I, I try to keep my columns to a certain length around 20 inches or so. And, you know, I will look at the count when I turn it in. And if I'm three inches over, I start going through, okay, where can I trim some fat? But that's what, that's right. what you do. And I don't think kids do that anymore. And there, and the problem yeah. more is that there's not enough people in the newsrooms now that can teach them how to do it right. I mean, uh, you know, I, I've, I've trained a lot of people that have done, gone on to have really good careers in, especially in sports journalism. Um, and, and I hope that they learned a little something from me, you know, coming up and, you know, maybe I cracked the whip on them to get them to, to understand it. There's some lessons like that I learned from my first editors that I'll never forget. Like what? Well, this is one, and this isn't a writing thing, but it's never ask someone something you can look up yourself. Uh-huh. You know, that old thing in the newsroom. Hey, what's the, who's the guy that did that? You know, look it up yourself. And, and I think we do a lot of that now. It's that for, I got to be first on Twitter thing. The anonymous sources thing is just crazy. According to anonymous sources close to the team who will not be, who cannot be identified due to, you know, it's like it was a time when anonymous sources were useless, but. Now everyone's racing to be the first on Twitter or Instagram or wherever, and it's just awful. Also, there was a time when if you use an anonymous source, it was for something huge. Like it had to be, number one, you have to tell me, the editor, who the source is, and it has to be for a major reason. And nowadays it'll be anonymous sources say uh, Robbie Anderson will be missing this game with a sprained ankle. You know, it's so yeah. it's so overly used now, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, it used to be you'd have to tell your anonymous source, look, if rubber hits the road, you're not going to be anonymous anymore. <laughs> you work at a newspaper. So you you live in a Fort Wayne's population is about 265,000. Uh, when you started there, you said the uh, the circulation, the Daily Circ was about 70,000, down to about 35,000. I know your dad, we're about the same age. I'm 47, you're 48, you have three kids. Daily newspapers are struggling in a major, major way. Do you see how this ends well? Uh I mean, no, not really. I mean, the thing with my age is people who are, say, 10 to 15 years older than me, um, you know, they just had to hold on for retirement. And so, and that, you know, there weren't enough people young like me at the time things started going downhill that had to make decisions because, you know, I looked at it and said, I just need to get 20 more years out of this. And, you know, at first I thought I could do it. And then every year that would go by, you'd say no. But, you know, now I'm faced at 48 with, Say our newspaper is a cuts way back in the next five years. I'm not ready to retire yet. And I'm not, you know, I'm too old and you're too old to start something new. You know, I'm not going to go back to college in my fifties and nobody's going to hire me to run their social media in, when I'm in my fifties. So yeah, it's a scary time to be a journalist because especially if you're of our age, I think if you're a little younger, your options are a little farther open because you're younger and you got more time and you got less responsibility. And I think if you're older than us, you can hopefully make it to retirement and at least say, well, I gave it a good go. I don't see a good ending for it. I keep thinking that the lack of quality journalism and trustworthy, you know, the fake news thing. I thought, God, if fake news can't save newspapers, you know, what are we going to do? But, you know, it it hasn't. The app that came out, the, you know, the trustworthy news, I can't remember what it's called, but. There was this one, you can get all the news that's real news on your, you know, and I thought, I hope they're linking to newspapers. I hope we're talking to somebody because, but, but the thing I've seen more than anything is that people don't care as much about what's going on around them. Um, when you didn't have the internet, you know, because 
think about your stream, what it's fed with. You know, I'm as guilty as anyone being a sports fan and a food fan that I get all the crazy stuff in my feed. But if I want to find out what's going on right here in the city, I have to actually do some searching. Whereas when I was a kid, you pick up the metro section, you knew what was going on everywhere. So, yeah, I don't see a good end for it. There's never been a better time to be a corrupt local politician than 2019 <laughs> because you're just not covered. Yeah, I'm just small, a low-level criminal of, of that ilk, you know, that's that's a good gig. But I still love the job, and I still love doing it, and that's the hard thing. You know, I keep thinking, well, maybe I should move on to something else. But I'm like, who's going to pay me to go out to eat and <laughs> talk about it? So I fed my family a lot of free meals over the years, thanks to the old Journal Gazette. Well, uh, Ryan, I am, uh, I'm seriously, I'm glad I... Uh, I'm glad I discovered you because you're a freaking great writer, man. My future of eating out in Fort Wayne probably isn't that bright, but um, your work is just great, and I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate you saying that. You come here, we're going to go get that uh, Macedonian sandwich, and it's, uh, you know, we'll get, because you only get beer in cans at that place, too, so it'd be just a great place to sit back. And you know what, Ryan? If you come out here, I will take you to our finest restaurant, Chick-fil-A. Oh, I really wanted to go out for the, the Ikea poison meatballs, though. I want to thank today's guest, Ryan Duvall, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Ryan on Twitter at Dining Out Duvall and read his work in the Journal Gazette in Fort Wayne, Indiana. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the kick ass MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>